my first immediate assumption is this is a metaphor, right? Like that this is something that we have misappropriated from another field of study. You're listening to Marianne Writes a Programming Language. And I'm Marianne. This is going to be a great week, because this is the week that I actually start implementing things. Are you ready? Okay, let's get started. What you're doing when you write a programming language is actually writing a series of applications that take string input and translate it into something the machine can execute. The building blocks of programming language implementation are parsers, lexers, and evaluators. Lexers take your code and break it up into parts. Parsers assemble those parts into trees that suggest semantic meaning. Evaluators walk the tree, interpret the meaning of each leaf, and execute the appropriate behavior on the machine. I wouldn't necessarily say that this stuff is easy to understand, but there are enough explanations out there, some very academic, some more plain language, some with examples, some heavy on history, that after I read two or three of them, I felt pretty confident about it. But for me at least, the hardest part of learning something is figuring out how to learn it in the first place. The thing is, just about every resource I studied on parsers said the same thing. This isn't how you would do things if you wanted to do this for real. If you were going to do it for real, you would use a generator. But when I raised my hand and told the internet, hello, I'm going to do it for real. What do I need to know to use these generators? Dead silence came back. There are only two types of people who write the code for parsers from scratch. Absolute beginners and absolute experts. The beginners write parsers, quote unquote, by hand so that they can learn how they do what they do. The experts write them so they can optimize them within an inch of their lives. Everyone else, as it turns out, writes a grammar that a generator uses to write a full lexer parser for them. There are huge advantages to generators. You get to leverage the experience of a whole language design community and control for edge cases and errors that probably never even would have occurred to you. You also make it easier for other people to implement your language as most generators accept the same formats for grammar. And lastly, you have less code you need to write when you use a generator. Since I wanted to implement my language in Go, selecting a generator was really just about which ones generate parsers in Go or not. Skimming the Wikipedia chart, I picked one out and started reading the documentation. It accepted grammars in something called EBNF. Cool. Well, what does that look like? You know, confronting what feels like a tidal wave of information is becoming an all too familiar feeling on this project. All the tutorials I could find about writing BNF grammars seemed to assume you understood the mechanics of grammars in the first place. I'm basically looking for Strunken White's elements of style in Microsoft Word Help Center. That's what this feels like. Something that kept getting referenced over and over again without much of any context to hint at why it was relevant was Chomsky's hierarchy. Chomsky's context-free grammar also Chomsky's normal form. But coming from a position of complete ignorance, it is hard to understand how these concepts map back to the work of parsers. 
So I reached out to a friend of mine who's a linguist and who happened to study under Chomsky. Did she know anybody who understood both the world of programming and the world of linguistics? Oh, she said, yes. You should talk to Jeff Hines out at Stony Brook. I have to confess that I'm vulnerable to a certain degree of magical thinking. I did my bachelor's degree in Stony Brook, so this felt right somehow. Then when I looked up Professor Hines, I saw that he had given a joint talk on grammar versus statistical approaches to natural language processing, in which they had promoted it by producing a parody poster of a heavyweight boxing match. Yes, I think this is the right person to talk to. So right now, you know, we're in the age of big data and a lot of the hype around um, artificial intelligence and machine learning is that you can provide these um, sort of general learning machines with lots of data and it's going to learn, uh, you know, what it is that it's supposed to do. And I don't think that's how children learn language at all. Um, I think children learn language from actually small amounts of data. Um, and I think that, you know, the big data, I mean, even in, in our own world, the big data is good for languages like English, French, Chinese, but you know, there's thousands of languages and there isn't a lot of data for most of those languages. But children will learn those languages if they're raised in those communities, again, effortlessly. Um, so my own feeling is that I want the computing, the, 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 the learning algorithms, the machine learning algorithms and the AI algorithms to learn more like people do. And what that means is that they're gonna learn from small data. And the way that they're gonna do that, I believe, and what I'm working on now, is I'm currently the, these machine learning algorithms, they need big data because they're searching for the needle in a huge haystack. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, so they, they frame the problem wrong. In the case of natural language, uh, we're not searching a huge haystack. In fact, it's a very small little pile of, of straw, okay? Yeah. And, and the needle's right there. And, you know, so, so the thing is, is, is what's that small pile of straw? What's that, how do we characterize natural language in the right kind of way so the search problem is actually very easy? Something I had been unaware of until I started digging into generators for parsers is how useful both parsers and grammars are for other challenges outside of implementing programming languages. I feel like I've been struggling to hang pictures around my home, and then one day someone knocks on my door and introduces me to the hammer. My career is filled with all these challenges that it turns out I just should have written a parser for, like data transformation, should have written a parser for that, log alerting, parser, allowing rich search querying, parser again. But when you tell me to write a grammar for my programming language, I don't even know where to start. Obviously, a grammar is a list of rules, but what kind of rules even go in a BNF grammar? And what sort of things are handled by error handling on the evaluator? How would you actually define what a grammar is? Because most people associate the word grammar with what they learn in school, which is a variety, which includes grammar, but also things like spelling and syntax and, and all sorts of different concepts. And most Software engineers, when they think about software, what they're thinking about is not grammar, they're thinking about syntax, right? So like, how would you explain what a grammar, what a formal grammar actually is? Yeah, so, um, so a formal grammar, I would explain is just any kind of device that's able to take a, a sequence 
and tell you whether it's valid or not. And that's, that's it. Um, and so in some sense, it's going to um, identify some subset of all logically possible sequences, um, the ones that are valid. Now you can have, you know, that, that could be a very large set. It could be, there could be infinitely many strings in that set. It's sort of like, you can think of the set of all even numbers. You can think of all the strings that begin with an A or the word the or whatever you want. Um, those are, you know, and you can write formal grammars that would recognize those strings. Um, and so that is, in one sense, what a formal grammar is. And it can be, it can take many forms. I mean, so people have studied formal grammars from logical perspectives. They've studied them from sort of machine type perspectives, from um, algebraic perspectives. So you can study these uh, formal grammars from many perspectives. Having said that, I would say that, you know, a grammar in the sense that people will typically use it, like both in software engineering and, and I would define a little bit differently than a formal grammar. So the formal grammar is just focused on, say, the set of strings or a set of structures more generally. It doesn't have to be strings. You could be talking about tree structures or graph structures. Mm -hmm. So any kind of object you're interested in, the formal grammar is essentially a classifier. It just say these are okay, these are going to be okay, and these are not going to be okay. Now, why would you care about that? Well, as you said, in software engineering and natural language, the idea is you're going to try to interpret, you want to be able to interpret those, those structures that are admissible, those valid structures. Okay. And so the question is, 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 you know, so that's the other part of grammar that I would say is important, is that not only is it just a set of, you know, structures or something like that, it's actually, um, more, more abstract. It's a way of, of trying to go from the structure that you see to some, to something else, to some kind of meaning, some kind of semantics. Um, and so this is also, you know, widely studied as we often think of, um, the syntax in a sense is part of the grammar that gets interpreted in two ways. So one way is sort of the linear string that, you know, you, that you would write out, which would get parsed into that syntactic structure. And the other one is going to be the meaning of that. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be the, 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 the instructions to the computer, how to, you know, fire up the circuits in certain ways, or, you know, the, the meaning that we're expressing when we're talking to each other. So the, the grammar is, is, is sort of fundamentally this um, connection between the, 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 the linear string that's being expressed and the um, meaning that's being expressed by that string. It's that connection. So we need to think about it in terms of the structure of our strings, in this case, our code. As it happens, the best resources I've found so far for how to think this through were the reference manuals for the generators themselves. This caught me a little bit by surprise because, you know, I don't expect to read about the vanishing horizon in the manual for Adobe InDesign, right? Reference manuals assume you know what the tool is for and just need to learn how to use the tool. But I guess I'm not the only one who has no idea where to start with grammars. My favorite resource so far has been the Definite Antler for Reference by Antler creator Tennis Parr. The book includes common patterns in grammar and step-by-step -step example grammars for real-world languages. So here's how Parr recommends starting. Go from the largest complete unit of the string down. So in other words, the first rule should define what a file is. What is that file made of? And the answer to that could be lines if you're parsing something like CSV, or it could be multi-line objects for something like JSON. 
Let's say it's an object. What is the object made of? Key value pairs, right? What are the keys made up? What makes a key valid versus an invalid key? Uh, strings with double quotation marks, if we're talking about JSON. What about the values? What makes a valid value versus an invalid value? And so on and so forth. Each description of a new level is a new set of rules to implement. All this is well and good, but when does the context-free part come in? So in, in the, the world of language design and language development, we hear about Chomsky all the time, particularly around Chomsky's hierarchy. Like what is Chomsky's hierarchy in like linguistics and like, does it connect to an underlying philosophy in any way? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, so, uh, so Chomsky's hierarchy is, um, so Noam Chomsky is a famous linguist and um, intellectual, arguably, you know, the, one of the most important figures of the 20th century, um, at one point, one of the most cited people in the world, you know, of all time. <laughs> um, and, you know, he's, he's somewhat, can be somewhat controversial, I guess, in, in both in linguistics and in his political writings. Uh, but there's no question his impact has been kind of enormous. Having said that, um, I also will say that, you know, I saw him give a talk, I don't know, several years ago at the University of Maryland, actually. And he just began by pointing out how, you know, the way that most people view language um, in the broader context of cognition, nothing's changed in 50 or 60 years. They all view it as just, you know, something that is just like any other aspect of cognition. And there's, there's nothing, um, you know, there's nothing about it in particular. And you see that in a lot of work outside of linguistics proper um, in cognitive science and so on. People are trying to tackle the, the language learning problem just like they would tackle any other problem. Mm -hmm. So they're not necessarily trying to focus on features of language per se. They're just focused on general features of cognition. Mm -hmm. So I was quite taken aback because I'm thinking, here's the guy who's done more than anybody else to sort of challenge that view. And he's saying, you know, actually, there's really no difference between now and 60 years ago. Uh, when you look at the broader scientific field. And I thought that was quite interesting. Right? And, um, but anyway, so what is the Chomsky hierarchy? So the Chomsky hierarchy is actually um, uh, a sort of a refined view of the notion of computability more generally. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, one of the big advances in the 20th century was this notion of what is computation? Um, and there are several figures who contribute to that. The most famous one now is Alan Turing, um, but he's not the only one. There was Alonzo Church. Right. Um, there was uh, Kurt Gödel. Um, these guys in the in the twenties and thirties um, really made these, you know, incredible. Uh, I don't know how to describe it, but they they pointed out in a way or they showed uh, what is computable. Okay. Yeah. And so they showed that there are certain problems that you know no com no uh, computer can can compute. Okay, and by computer they don't just mean the hunk of metal on your and plastic on your desk or in your in your phone. They mean anything that computes, yeah. uh, which is sort of including people. People are in a sense information processing systems. They are in a sense computers. Just they're made of a different type of material than than you know the phone in your pocket. So so there's sort of an outer limit of what can be computed. And so for example, um, what Alan Turing showed was that most real numbers. Okay, actually, real number. They're just you know, a real number is just a like the like the like pi three point one four goes on and on and on. Um, most of these numbers cannot be computed. 
And by that, what he means is that like for pi, you can give me a number like five and I can tell you the fifth digit of pi. And if you give me a number like 10 million, I can follow some kind of computation and eventually I can give you the 10 millionth digit of pi. Yeah. And there are you know, programs that are running this stuff all the time. Yeah. Um, but there are, but most real numbers aren't like that. Most real numbers, you can give me, you, there, there's no algorithm for which you can give me a number n and I can give you the nth digit of that real number. Yeah. Okay. And so that's quite interesting. So, you know, there's a question of what, you know, so that's the limit of computability. So what's the Chomsky hierarchy? So I said it's a, re so now, you know, I'm, I, I don't know, I think I'm probably belaboring this point too much, but <laughs> you're, you're, I'm taking too long to get to the point, but the, the, when you refine the, the chunk, when you refine that, you're asking, okay, suppose I have, so that's if I have all the resources and time in the world. Right. Suppose I limit my resources in some way. Now what can, what am I able to compute? Okay. And so that's how you get these different. And, and if we do this in string space, instead of in number space, what can we do? Okay. So I mentioned before how a formal grammar can distinguish between this set of strings is valid or that's, or these strings are not right. valid. So, you know, that's sort of a computational problem. You know, we, have to, we have to sort of, in the same way that you want to recognize a number or identify a number by knowing what the nth digit is, you want to be able to identify a set of strings by saying, is that string in the set or not? Okay. So the hierarchy isn't so much about the complexity of the grammar so much as it is, is about the computational abilities and the level of specification of the grammar. Is that a good way of kind of summing it up? Well, it is about complexity of the grammar. Um, but, you know, it's also, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's what the Chomsky hierarchy does is that it, it just, you know, it, it identifies different types of, computational resources that you need to solve different types of so that, so I would use the word membership problem to describe this this problem of of is this string in the set or not in the set okay got it got it so if, so if I if we have the term membership problem then I would say the Chomsky hierarchy classifies membership problems over strings okay over sets of strings and that so the con so and it was, it was the reason why I, I hearkened back to the, you know, dawn of computer science and this whole thing and this long story that I'm telling is because it, it wasn't just about linguistics. I mean, the context-free grammars, which is the, sort of the part of the context of the Chomsky hierarchy that Chomsky introduced, um, you know, that, that became the basis for programming languages and compilers and all that kind of stuff. So when you, you know, when, when you're going to write your own programming language, you're going to have to learn something about uh, context-free grammars, right? Right. And and you know, and there's also no way around hard. that because that's what's used. I mean, all of these programming languages are essentially context-free grammars, right? Yeah, and and that's not the only type of of. Um, I mean, so that's in a very important region of the Chomsky hierarchy, um, and we can ask the question: Are all natural language patterns, you know, in a sense, context-free? Um, and the answer to that question appears to be no. Yeah. Um, when you look at certain types of syntactic patterns, you have to go outside of that. Now, you don't have to go all the way to, you know, the Turing complete computer. Right. There's an area called context sensitive. Right. And, and that seems to be where we find natural language patterns. In my own work in morphology and phonology, context free actually seems to be more than sufficient. And you can go much smaller than that. The last thing I would say with the Chomsky hierarchy is that uh, many people, when they in, when they study it, you know, it's in it's in all the in computer science undergrad courses. You have to take typically a course in automata theory 
and and you study the Chomsky hierarchy and complexity and so on. Um, and people, and they all know that, you know, this was work that was done 50, 60 years ago. So many people think that was a chapter that was opened and closed. Um, and that's it. But that's not the case. The <laughs> fact is, is that in the past 60 years, there are new chapters constantly being written with those same methods. Um, and we have much better knowledge now about, I mean, the Chomsky hierarchy is just the most famous of many, many types of hierarchies, many, many types of ways we can study um, sequences, structures, objects, transformations from sequences to other sequences. So machine translation, you know, you want to, you want to translate a, a sentence in French to a sentence in Swahili, you know, those, those are all things that we, that formal language theory studies. Mm -hmm. And um, there's many more hierarchies beyond just the Chomsky hierarchy that are relevant to these problems. And so there's a, there's, um, it's a very, it's a very, it's an alive living area. Yeah. Oh, this is so interesting. So like what, what's particularly compelling to me is when, when I was first exposed to the Chomsky hierarchy in the context of writing programming languages, my first immediate assumption is this is a metaphor, right? Like that this is something that we have misappropriated from another field of study to like uh, provide a, a little bit of like visualization behind uh, what these like really kind of abstract grammars mean and it doesn't actually connect to anything specific to computation and what i'm hearing is no 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 that's completely wrong that it actually is all about computation and the level of computation needed at various parts of the hierarchy which is not what i was expecting to hear is that super that's super interesting after my conversation with Professor Hines, I went back to the things I had read about Chomsky's hierarchy, but this time I reread them with computation on my mind. And just like that, it clicked. The lowest level of grammar in Chomsky's hierarchy is what's called a regular grammar, as in a regular expression. When a regular expression matches a pattern in a string, all it knows, all it needs to know to determine that a match is what it is, is directly in front of it at the time. And from this type of parsing, we can deduce a certain level of meaning. But you couldn't use regular expressions to parse a programming language, because the same characters can have different meanings in programming languages depending on how they're used. Think about the equal sign. By itself, it could be assignment. With another equal sign, it means something different. With an exclamation mark, still another meaning. So in order to parse a programming language, you need a little bit more computation you need to factor in whatever came immediately before. Those are context-free grammars. Above context-free grammars are context-sensitive grammars. Most spoken languages are context-sensitive. In English, for example, it's usually not enough to have the word directly before the word you're trying to figure out the meaning of. We often need the whole sentence up to that point. Still more computation, and so on and so forth. Okay. I feel ready to start writing this grammar. I really like the look of specs written in Alloy, so I'm gravitating towards using that as my inspiration. An Alloy file is made up of uh, hash map looking structures called signatures, blocks of logic code, and short one-line statements that define what the model should check and at what level of complexity. You can even import other models, although this doesn't actually work the way I want it to in Alloy. Our spec files will start with a declaration statement, giving the model a name. That's one line. Let's use the keyword spec. 
followed by a valid identifier. Identifiers are alphanumeric, but the first character must be a letter in order to keep them from being confused with an actual number by the parser. After the declaration statement, we'll have mm, an import block. Let's do that the same way Go does it. Keyword import followed by a left parentheses, followed by a set of strings with import paths, followed by a right parentheses. Yeah, I like the way that looks. At this point, I compiled the grammar and started experimenting with how that was looking in token form. Antler 4 lets you determine what things the parser handles and what things the lexer handles by modifying the case of the non-terminal symbols. Basically, what that means is that each line of the grammar looks like a variable assignment. The left-hand side, the non-terminal symbols, are like variable names, and the right-hand side are the rule definitions. And yes, there can be multiple rules, joined by a pipe as an or, and they can also be recursive. But for a simple example, a rule to parse 2 plus 2 might read something like int, open quote, plus sign, close quote, int. In Antler 4, if the non-terminal symbol begins with a lowercase letter, then the rule belongs to the parser. If it begins with a capital letter, then it belongs to the lexer. The distinction is what gets treated as a token, rules belonging to the lexer, and what gets treated as a string to potentially be broken up into more branches and nodes on the tree, rules belonging to the parser. So far, this grammar is just for a tiny header that names the spec and imports other specs. After that are our blocks of code, and that's more complicated. If we're using alloy specs as an inspiration, then we will have a hash map-like structure that defines the elements of our system. Therefore, the next rule is that there will be one or more entities. Entities are defined by a keyword def followed by an identifier, followed by an equal sign, followed by a left bracket, followed by a properties list, followed by a right bracket. What did the properties look like? Well, they start with an identifier, obviously, the key, followed by a colon, followed by a value. For the time being, the values will be either integers or strings. We don't want to get too complicated before recompiling and looking for errors. The final grammar will need to be more robust than this, but this is the way I worked through it. Starting simple, compiling the parser and lexer, importing a mock spec, and fixing bugs before adding more complexity. Oh, yes. It is incredibly satisfying when it gives you the output you were expecting. You've been listening to Marianne Wright's Programming Language. A transcript of this every episode is available on the dev community. Just go to dev.2 slash belmar to find them. That's dev.2 slash b-e-l-l-m-a-r. There's also a fair amount of bonus content available to supporters, including the full interviews with the guests from this week. Mm-hmm.